coming up on Crossing the Lane Lines. They also recognized that, um, you know, you could make money from, from swimming and that swimming was pleasurable. So, you know, Africans began um, teaching their children how to swim when they were about 11 to 16 months of age. Um, and then, you know, once kids became proficient swimmers, then water became a playground for them, whether it was a river or the ocean. And this was part of their, their playground. This allowed them to experience the world, to socialize with each other. From 1445 to 1880, black people were regarded as the best swimmers and canoe builders in the world. How did this happen? And how did it change so dramatically? Dr. Kevin Dawson will join us to explain. Stay tuned. In San Francisco, this is Najee Ali, and you're listening to Crossing the Lane Lines. I have a question for our listeners out there. From the mid-15th century to the late 19th century, who were considered the best swimmers in the world? If you guess Europeans, you'd be incorrect. True, ancient Europeans were proficient swimmers, but according to our guest, from the medieval until the modern period, and for numerous reasons, they were discouraged from swimming. So who were the best swimmers? Give up? Black folk. Yes, the aquatic feats of Africans were almost ingrained in them from birth. Add to that, their skill at canoe building was second to none during these times. Joining us to talk about the rich swimming pros and canoe-building skills of blacks in the diaspora is Dr. Kevin Dawson. He received his Ph.D. in history from the University of South Carolina in 2005 and currently teaches at the University of California, Merced. He is a surfer, open-water swimmer, and the author of Undercurrents of Power, Aquatic Culture in the African Diaspora, the winner of the Lapidus Center's 2019 Harriet Tubman Prize. Dr. Kevin Dawson, welcome to Crossing the Lane Lines. Yeah, um, it's, it's a pleasure to be here with you. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Dr. Dawson, as I mentioned in my introduction, ancient Europeans were proficient swimmers. But from the medieval period to the modern era, they were discouraged from swimming. Why was that? So there's a few things um, that actually end up discouraging Europeans um, from swimming at that time. One is changes in warfare um, that favored, you know, heavily armored knights. And so while swimming was oftentimes incorporated into warfare um, in ancient times, you know, with armor, uh, European knights obviously couldn't swim. Um, and the other, I think, more important thing is beliefs in Christianity, kind of the rise of Christianity during the medieval period, and um, medical beliefs. And so. <clears throat> Most people at the time swam nude um, in ancient times, really up until um, about the 20th century. Most people um, throughout the world swam, swam nude or semi-nude. And European or the Catholic Church um, saw nudity, began to see nudity in the medieval period as immoral um, and leading to different forms of corruption and sin like adultery and things like that. And so um, the church crack down on on um, these forms of public nudity. Um, another thing, though, and, and one of the most driving forces seems to have been the belief that 
um, the body was made of four humans, this medical belief that humans were made up of liquid, solid, um, hot and cold. And it was also believed that the body, um, that liquid could actually penetrate through one's pores. And so if somebody went swimming or immersed themselves in water to bathe, um, they'd take on too much water. And that's the belief was that this, this excess water was cause, causing uh, the diseases that were ravaging the continent, like cholera, um, bubonic plague, dysentery, things like that. And this is also why Europeans began to bleed people um, or to put leeches on people. That was a way of drawing off the excess water. And so those are really the two, um, two of the driving, the, the main reasons why uh, Europeans stopped swimming. In contrast to whites of this 400-year period, Africans looked upon swimming as vital, a life skill, in fact. I'm wondering if you can talk about how immersionary swimming was to African culture at the time. Yeah, so before I, I, I talk about swimming itself, I mean, you need to understand, I think, Africa, um, especially the region that I study, which is Atlantic Africa. So it's from Senegal in the north to Angola in the south, and it stretches several hundred miles inland, um, basically to Mali, um, the, in, the interior of the Congo. And so if you look at that region, it's dominated by water, right? It has thousands of miles of coastline. It has massive rivers, some of the largest rivers in the world, the Niger, the Congo. Um, and not only are these rivers really long, um, but they're also really wide. Um, and so some of these rivers, um, like the Gambia, uh, it's like 20 miles wide. And so water is everywhere. There's also lakes um, and smaller creeks and things like that. And and so, you know, water is everywhere. And so Africans, they didn't – today we oftentimes think of life as maybe being kind of landbound or maritime, like um, farmers or fishermen or something like that. Um, but Africans didn't perceive their world – I mean, they, they – they, exploited their world, um, all of the natural environment around them, both land and water. And so Africans oftentimes farmed one season, fished another, and then used dugout canoes to transport crops um, and other goods to market um, and, and things like that. And so they, they had these intimate connections with the water um, in those regards. And so they also believed, um, and we can circle back to this, but they believed that water was this sacred space, that the land of the dead lay across, depending on where people lived, it lay across either the ocean, so coastal people tended to think that, that the ancestral world lived across, resided across the ocean or at the bottom of the ocean, whereas people who lived along large waterways tended to believe uh, that, the, that the ancestral world was at the bottom of that large river or lake or on the other side of it. And so there were these spiritual beliefs. And so actually immersing yourself in the water was a way of connecting not only with the ancestral world, but also with all the deities and spirits that lived in the world, in, in the water. Um, so they had all of these positive beliefs about water. I think it's, it's important to understand that. Um, they also recognized that, um, you know, you could make money from, from swimming and that swimming was pleasurable. So, you know, Africans began um, teaching their children how to swim when they were about 11 to 16 months of age. 
Um, and then, you know, once kids became proficient swimmers, then water became a playground for them, whether it was a river or the ocean. And this was part of their, their playground. This allowed them to experience the world, to socialize with each other um, in some really important ways. And then Africans tended to, as I, as I kind of suggested, um, they saw that they could use swimming to make money. So in some places, uh, water or gold would actually accumulate at the bottom of um, waterfalls or rapids, and so people would dive down and collect gold. Um, they would dive down and set fish traps and then collect fish traps or harvest um, shellfish. Um, in the Congo Angola region, well, actually throughout Africa, cowrie shells, which are these small white shells, were a form of currency. Um, and so uh, mostly women would dive down in the Congo Angola region and harvest these shells um, and string them together, and then they would be used as, as I said, as a form of currency. And so yeah, I mean, Africans, they also realized, I mean, to, to kind of get to your point, um, that, you know, since they're in these very, uh, in these places where water in some ways dominates the land, uh, they realized that in order to protect their children from drowning accidentally or to save themselves if their canoes uh, overturned in the ocean or a river, they needed to be proficient swimmers. And so they also understood, I think really importantly, um, that they needed to be strong swimmers and that they needed to be able to swim um, several miles and stay afloat for prolonged periods of time. During this same period, the slave trade began and millions of Africans were taken in bondage to the Americas. Many of us have seen images of the cramped conditions and the chains that were used to constrain Africans from mutiny. But we often don't talk about one of the chief reasons for bounding these men and women. Oftentimes, if given the opportunity, they'd jump overboard and swim away, correct? Yeah, so <clears throat> there were, you're absolutely right, uh, Najee. I mean, so whenever a slave ship was close to land, um, whether it was in a river, because um, th these rivers in Africa were, were, again, several miles wide, and so slave ships could sail up rivers, um, or if they were in coastal waters, whether it was off the coast of Africa or in the Americas, uh, they would keep uh, enslaved Africans um, chained to prevent them from jumping aboard and um, trying to secure their freedom by, by swimming to shore. And so when I say close to land, I mean, I'm talking about in sight of land. So, you know, even when they're 20 miles out to sea and, you know, land was still visible, uh, they would keep captives um, chained up. It's not just there, though. I mean, one of the things that I found in my research is that um, – a common way for slaves to commit suicide, well, the suicide rate on slave ships was really high. It was uh, about 11%. Um, and in a typical kind of quote-unquote normal society, it's, it's less than 1%. I think it's less than 0.001%. Um, but on, again, on slave ships, it was much higher. And oftentimes one of the ways that captives would kill themselves was by drowning themselves. And I began to wonder, I mean, I knew this, but I was wondering, you know, what was going on here? And so, like, if they're proficient swimmers, how are they actually drowning themselves? And so what I found from looking more closely at the sources was that they actually, I mean, they jump overboard um, and sometimes they swim away from a slave ship and turn back. 
and even look at their enslavers or enslavers would be chasing them in a rowboat or something like that. And what they would seem to do then is to just swim down as deep as they could, um, exhale, um, and then die before they could um, kind of instinctively resurface or just, you know, uh, kind of convince themselves not to, to swim up. And I mean, the sources are pretty specific in that Europeans documented Africans, again, swimming away um, and then intentionally diving down. And then there would be this huge kind of uh, upwelling of, of air bubbles. Um, and so the question also becomes then, so if they're intentionally killing themselves in this way, why are they doing it? And as I mentioned, Africans believed that the spirit world lay at the bottom of the ocean or the other side of the ocean. And so they also believed that life was cyclical, cyclical that you died and were reborn. And so they believed that in, I mean, what the sources suggest is that they believed that in killing themselves in water, they facilitated this transmigration of their spirit down to the spirit world and then rapidly uh, back to their ancestral homelands, you know, to the, to the societies they had been uh, stolen away from. So there are these, I think, important kind of twists to how Africans swam. Um, and what I would argue is that they're swimming, they swam for freedom in this life and also in the afterlife, right? If they're not going to be free in the here and now, they're going to be able to kill themselves and come back um, and rejoin family members and friends again in the societies they had been taken from. I'm wondering if you can describe the bravery of slaves in the Americas when it came to dealing with predatory life. In your book, you write about how they took on alligators and even sharks in open water as a form of sport. I'm wondering if you can talk first about this amazing bravery of these slaves in these exhibitions, and secondly, how whites viewed these aquatic feats. Yeah, so this is this is another example of Africans' cultural retention. So Africans, they arrive in the Americas, and, um, and I think this is a really important point. We oftentimes might think that only small elements of kind of West African society uh, remain in the Americas, but historians are showing that Africans, enslaved Africans, were really successful in recreating much of kind of African daily life um, in the United States as well as the Caribbean and Latin America. And so in Africa, these um, forms of aquatic blood sport of diving into the water to fight crocodiles or sharks or even hippopotamuses um, was a way for men to demonstrate their masculinity, um, their virtue, their honor, uh, these sorts of things. And in the Americas, the same thing continues. Um, not as widespread, it doesn't seem, but they did dive in, as you said, to fight alligators um, in places where there were crocodiles. They fought crocodiles. They fought sharks. They fought other animals that weren't actually dangerous, like in South Carolina, they jump on the back of manta rays, which aren't dangerous, but Europeans perceived manta rays as being really dangerous and they could, that they could actually swallow human beings whole. And so they would die, jump on the back of, of manta rays and harpoon them. Um, and uh, they, you know, they'd fight sharks and crocodiles and things with knives. And so they're doing this for to express 
um, like to an, and articulate their masculinity, their virtue and honor, um, and, and things within the bonded communities, within these these enslaved communities. And so, enslavers, it's it's really interesting because on the one hand, they were terrified of alligators and crocodiles. Um, you know, these are creatures that they had never seen before in Europe, and they often describe them as being dragons or dragon-like. Um, I mean, some descriptions talk about uh, European descriptions, American descriptions, you know, describe alligators as being large enough to swallow um, a small cow um, and that they actually had arms that could grab people. Um, so, again, very dragon-like. And so, on the one hand, the kind of the instant reaction was that they saw Africans as being brave, um, but then they had to take a step back because if they recognized that Africans were brave and were virtuous, um, then they realized that this was undercutting the arguments that were using that were being used to enslave Africans, which was that Africans were subhuman, were savage, and things like that. And so then what they began to do is to actually incorporate these blood sports into justifications for enslaving Africans. So what they would say is that, yeah, this appears brave, but bravery required intellect, it required virtue, it required forethought, you know, to actually recognize that you were getting into a dangerous situation. And they would say Africans lacked all of these abilities. And so what Africans were actually doing were just reacting in an animalistic um, kind of savage way. They were responding to danger the same way that a lion or a wolf or a bear would. Um, and so they end up uh, turning these acts or, or portraying these acts as really animalistic, um, again, in order to support and legitimize um, their, their claims uh, for enslaving people. Can you speak about the diving culture of Africans and how this was a source of occupation for those that lived along the coastlines of the African continent? Yeah, so in in Africa, um, you know, they, and, and, and actually, I mean, you're right that this was very much, there's a coastal occupation of diving, but there also was, I think, importantly, uh, that swimming and diving was something that was done by interior people. Um, along rivers. I mean, some of these rivers are, uh, some rivers are, are, are really deep, hundreds of feet deep. And so what Africans were doing is um, they would dive down and they would collect, uh, and they'd collect shellfish. They would set fishing traps. I mean, there were certain types of bottom feeding fish that were regarded as a delicacy. And so they dive down and set traps that could be used to catch these fish and then dive down and, um, you know, check it to see if there was a fish in it and haul the fish up. Um, they would actually use um, swimming as a way of um, traversing great distances. So there's some places, some lakes, where it was believed um, that uh, the, use of taboo, the, the use of canoes was taboo. And so if they couldn't use a canoe, they would actually use paddle boards or early versions of surfboards um, to cross these lakes, or they'd swim across these lakes. Um, they'd also dive down. I mean, one thing that we don't oftentimes think of is that Africans had a rich coastal trade. Um, so they're developing canoes, which was, I, I'm thinking we'll talk about in a little bit. They'd go out into the, into the ocean a little ways, 
um, and they go up and down and connect themselves, coastal societies, to each other. And so sometimes these canoes would overturn, um, and so they'd dive down and salvage the goods out of these canoes. And later, with the arrival of Europeans, um, they'd actually dive and salvage um, shipwrecks off the African coast, European shipwrecks off the African coast, um, or they dive under ships, European ships, to scrape the barnacles off of these ships. Um, so they're they're engaging in a lot. Uh, I mean, they're using diving um, and swimming again in a lot of really important and lucrative ways. This is a great segue for talking about canoes. The Atlantic African and the New World slave canoes were designed very similarly. Can you tell us about how these were designed and the advantage that they gave the oars person? Yeah, so the, we, we, and I think this is a really important point um, because typically, um, I mean, I think that my research is, is, is the first uh, it's the first person to actually debunk the kind of the myth, um, although other people questioned it, other historians and, and anthropologists questioned it, that, uh, that, and the myth was that the dugout canoes that enslaved Africans were using were designed after um, Amerindian uh, prototypes that uh, American Indians, and, and this actually goes back to kind of older historical theories on slave culture. So the earlier theories about slavery was that, or slave culture rather, was that the slave trade and that slavery were so brutal that they actually stripped Africans of their uh, African cultural practices. That instead of focusing on retaining traditions, they focused on survival. So the slave trade was incredibly brutal, as was uh, slavery. But Africans used their culture as a way of really surviving and thriving under these harsh conditions. Um, and that's, I think, really important to understand um, that uh, just how culture was this way of, of connecting themselves to the societies that they had been taken from. And then also it was a way of resistance. It was a cultural form of resistance, saying to their enslavers that I'm not going to be like you. I'm going to remain, I'm going to retain um, and reimagine the cultural traditions of my ethnic group. And so African uh, dugout canoes, they differ significantly from Amerindian dugout canoes. And one of the reasons is that Africans had actually developed iron tools. And so this let them, whereas Amerindians were using stone tools and fire. Um, and so because Africans had iron tools, they could quickly carve uh, a dugout canoe and they could, they could thin down the sides so that they were only about an inch, the sides were only about an inch thick and the bottom was you know, maybe two or three inches thick. And so these were really kind of sleek, aerodynamic uh, shaped canoes. Um, they were fast, they were agile, um, they were responsive. I mean, a canoe man um, or a canoe, a dugout canoe, an African dugout canoe, uh, they they ranged in length from six feet to over a hundred feet, um, and a thirty foot canoe could actually hold up to nine tons of cargo and still pass through water that was only about a foot deep. Um, and so this is pretty impressive. I mean, one thing is that African, while Africa has a lot of water and some of the waterways are very deep, there's also large stretches of water that are are really shallow. And so this let them 
go through all sorts of waterways without having to offload and reload um, different types of boats. Also what they developed was, and this is really crucial, is what are called surf canoes. Um, and so these were dugout canoes that were highly modified. Um, they had built up sides, they were strengthened with keels, um, and they had cross bracing. And these canoes were, um, they were typically about 10 to 30, 35 feet long. And what they could do, they were designed to actually cut through waves when they were launching from beaches and to ride waves ashore. So they were actually fast enough to catch waves and maneuverable enough to surf waves. And the importance of these canoes, or the reason why the Africans developed these canoes is because Africa, Atlantic Africa, has very few natural harbors. And so for coastal people to actually get out to offshore uh, fisheries or to uh, offshore fish, uh, commercial um, shipping lanes, they had to pass through the surf. And so these canoes let them do that. And so as a result of that, um, I mean, it, for comparison's sake, when Europeans arrived, um, they had a lot of difficulty actually landing their rowboats um, on shore. And so really from the 1400s all the way to the 1950s, believe it or not, when Europeans um, colonists constructed harbors in Africa, virtually all of the goods imported and exported out of Africa were transported between ship and shore in these dugout canoes, in these surf canoes. Um, and so in some really important ways, they ended up really floating Atlantic economies. If it wasn't for them, I, I'm not really sure what would have, how, how uh, you know, kind of commercial Atlantic commerce would have developed. I recall reading in your book about a Senegambian proverb, and it reads, the blood of kings and the tears of the canoe maker are sacred things which must not touch the ground. Could you tell us the meaning behind this proverb? Yeah, I think that's a really kind of important and telling proverb because it does um, reflect kind of the, the importance of canoes and Africans' connection to water. So I, I guess what I would first of all say is that many Africans, not just the kind of professional canoe maker, were able to craft dugout canoes. Um, so this was in some ways a widely held skill. But the canoe maker, they're the ones who made these highly specialized um, performance canoes. So they made surf canoes. They were the ones, you know, a typical person or a group of people could make a canoe that was, you know, six to 25, 30 feet. Um, and it was capable of navigating relatively calm water, but navigating surf was another thing. And so the, these canoe makers made these surf canoes. They also made the 100, 150 long foot long uh, war canoes um, that Africans then used to create navies. I mean, one thing that we might not recognize is that Africans actually had navies and they were quite capable of defending their coastal waters, um, even against European ships. Um, so not only keeping Europeans out of rivers um, that they wanted to keep them out of, but actually capturing European ships. Um, and so, yeah, they were constructing navies, um, you know, that some were, were formed of uh, several hundred canoes, um, you know, these 100, 150 foot long canoes. And so they're important, these, these 
canoe makers, I should say, were important for commerce. They were important for warfare, for you know, states projecting power through their navies or defending um, their waterways and land uh, with navies. Um, but then there also, it, it speaks to, the proverb speaks to the spirituality of canoes because dugout canoes were made from what are called silk cottonwood trees. Um, and silk cottonwood trees are these tall trees that have buttress roots that, which are buttress roots are these flaring roots that extend about 20 feet up the trunk. Um, and then they reach, you know, 100, 150 feet or so. Um, and it was believed that cottonwood trees actually, um, that spirits resided in these trees, that some societies believed that spirits of children um, that were to be born lived within these trees, um, and that the trees actually connected the heavens and the earth, right? Their roots grounded them, and then their, um, their canopies connected uh, the earth to the sky. And when you cut down one of these trees, there was a whole process where they had, canoe makers had to ask the spirit of the tree if they could actually fell the tree, gain permission, and then they, they chopped down the tree. The, the spirit of that tree would continue to reside within the dugout canoe, even after it was made. And so fishermen, um, commercial canoemen, um, and, and women that would use these commercial canoe women would, would make sacrifices to the spirits in these trees. And so when they, in these canoes rather, uh, to the spirit of the canoe, and the canoe also then had a gender. And um, so, and the gender determined how the canoe actually rode. And so this, the, the spirit of the tree that continued to live on in the canoe could also communicate with water deities around it to help guide fishermen to shoals of fish or guide commercial canoemen to um, safe passages. And so it was really important to follow this sacred process in order to keep the spirit alive within the tree um, so that it could, it could continue to, um, to benefit the users um, even as a, as a canoe. Throughout the last 100 years, outside of historians like yourself, the African-American community knows virtually nothing about our rich aquatic culture. First of all, why is that? What happened and how can we get that back? Yeah, I mean, this is really, I think, tragic in that, um, you know, that, that, that African-Americans um, have lost much of our, our aquatic culture and I, I see it really as a result of um, of, of racism. Um, so a couple other historians have, have documented this in the 20th century, like Andrew Carl and um, Jeff Wiltsey. Um, but what ends up happening is that, so enslaved Africans um, remain proficient swimmers up until slavery is abolished in 1865, as do um, you know, African-Americans after that point. So African-Americans maintain their swimming, their boating traditions up until the early 20th century. And really what began to happen was that there was a cultural shift in how white Americans perceived water. So up until that point, um, you know, this kind of interface with water wasn't something that was valued by white Americans. And so 
what began to happen was that in the late 20th century, or in the late 19th century, early 20th century, white Americans began to see beaches, whether they were ocean beaches or you know rivers or lakes, um, as places where um, you could go to recreate. And so previous to that, they had been places oftentimes where trash was dumped. I mean, this was places where African-American recreated, and so white Americans didn't want to interact with them. And so they saw it as kind of, unfortunately, I mean, as kind of this place of the refuse of society, you know, whether it was people of African descent or other people of color or, you know, kind of dumping grounds for urban waste and things like that. And so what began to happen, though, again, is like late, late 18, early 1900s, is that they saw beaches as a place to recreate. And so they began to force African-Americans off of these waterways um, in order to, to make uh, space for themselves. Um, so they began to segregate beaches um, and say, no, you know, black people, because black people had been recreating at, um, I mean, at some undesirable places, but also at some really nice beaches. Um, and so they be, white Americans began to say, no, these are now white beaches. Um, they also began to segregate swimming pools. Um, and so swimming pools had grown in popularity in America since about the 1880s, public swimming pools. And so what they were using them for, though, was not so much white Americans in urban spaces were using them not so much as for swimming, but for bathing purposes. So in the 1880s, 1890s, early 1900s, swimming pools were um, kind of gender-based. So you had male pools and female pools, and so, say, women of any race could go into that pool and um, kind of wade around. There were some areas where it was a little bit deeper and they could swim, but they tended to be crowded, so they're not really using a lot of swim strokes at that, in these pools. But you could still somewhat swim around. And so then what began to happen, though, in the 20th century was that white Americans said, hey, it would be great if we could use these swimming pools on the weekend as a, um, as a place of recreation. And so what they began to do then was to, to segregate swimming pools um, by race. Um, and so most of the really large, nice pools became, um, you know, uh, designated as white pools, and if a city had, you know, 15 swimming pools, um, 12 of them or 13 of them would be designated as white only, um, and the others would be for black or other people of, of color. Um, in California, it's a little bit different. Um, what they ended up doing in California was having the pools open most of the week for white people. And then Sunday was known as either Colored People Day or International Day. And that was the day that, um, you know, African Americans, Latinx, Asian Americans um, could go and use those pools. The important thing to recognize, though, is that there were no filtration systems on the pool. And so what they would do is they'd drain the pool and fill the pool again with fresh water. And so <clears throat> the pool would be drained Sunday night and filled again Monday, so it was ready for use on Tuesday. So by Sunday, when it was you know, Color People's Day, the water was really murky and nasty. Um, and I've, I've actually spoken to people um, 
of different racial backgrounds, and they, even I should say, some Olympic um, swimmers um, who grew up in that period, and they tended to, to avoid those pools just because they were so disgusting. And so what ends up happening then is that you know these waterways are segregated along these in these ways. Another really important thing is that in order to force, or as black people were being forced off of um, natural waterways, um, racial violence was used against them, and oftentimes lynchings um, were used. So in the South, a popular place for African Americans to swim was under um, railroad bridges. And so what began to happen was that uh, to force people off of these waterways and to send other messages to black communities is that African Americans would be lynched from these railroad bridges and they became known as lynching bridges. Um, and so that discouraged African Americans from swimming there. Also the bodies of lynching victims were thrown into, uh, discarded into these, like weighted down and thrown into these waterways. Um, with Emmett Till being um, perhaps the best uh, example of, of this racialized violence. And so, um, you know, as African-Americans were being lynched along these waterways or as their bodies were being discarded by white mobs into these waterways, this discouraged African-Americans from um, swimming there. And I should mention too that it's not just that this didn't just happen in the South. This also happened in, in the Northeast, uh, in Connecticut, in New York, uh, in New Jersey, uh, in Illinois, in Ohio. So this was not just um, in Minnesota. Uh, this was not just a Southern phenomenon. This was also, this was something that was happening across the country. And that is all the time we have for today. We've been speaking to Dr. Kevin Dawson, professor of history at the University of California, Merced. He is a surfer, avid swimmer, and the author of Undercurrents of Power, Aquatic Culture in the African Diaspora, the winner of the Lapidus Center's 2019 Harriet Tubman Prize. And I'll encourage all of our listeners to read this incredibly well-researched volume of work. Dr. Kevin Dawson, we wish you and your family health and safety during this time of uncertainty in our country. And thank you again for joining us on Crossing the Lane Lines. Yeah, thank you very much, Najee. I, I really appreciate the opportunity to speak with you. Um, and hopefully we can reconnect in the near future. Take care. You've been listening to Crossing the Lane Lines, which is produced by the Black Swim Collective at our studios in San Francisco, California. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe on Spotify, Anchor, or wherever you receive your podcast. From all of us here, We thank you so much for your support. And remember, no lives matter until black lives matter. In San Francisco, this is Najee Ali for Crossing the Lane Lines. Signing off.